0: We'll take that Bible this morning as we return back to the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John and John 13. And we'll be looking at verses 18 through 30 this morning on the title, The Betrayer is Revealed. The Betrayer is Revealed. There have been a number of traitors over the years. But the most notorious, the most heinous traitor, both in the Bible and in all of human history was none other than Judas Iscariot's. Judas had the incredible privilege for three years to be an apostle and to be in ministry with the Lord Jesus Christ. Yet, incredibly, if you know the account, after three years being in the presence of our Lord, being around his miracles, observing the miracles, hearing the teaching and hearing the the messages, Judas, of course, betrayed our Lord with a kiss at his arrest. So clearly, he is the most despised traitor in human history. His personality has to be as dark as any human being that's ever existed. He is, I would say, the greatest hypocrite ever to walk the face of the earth. What's interesting is that even before the Lord Jesus Christ would go into the trial with Pilate, according to Matthew chapter 27. Judas is dead, dead, driven to the suicide, certainly by his monstrous guilt, tortured in the throes, one writer said, of his own self-execution, he committed suicide. The rope breaks, or the the branch breaks, in Acts chapter 1, and he was smashed on the rocks beneath the precipice from which he hanged himself. The Bible very clearly says that when he fell, his bowels gushed out. He would be dead before the trial itself. When you look at the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, and when you look at the character of Judas, they are utterly opposites. You have on the one hand the Holy One, and then on the other hand, you have the wretched one. You have the Lord Jesus Christ who is the king of heaven. And then you have the hell-bound reprobate. You have the great lover of sinners in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you have the sinner who hated our Lord. Judas is the greatest example of squandered privilege that has ever existed in this world. Now, for some, as we come to the trial, soon we're here in the upper room, but as we come to the trial, as we come to the arrest of the Lord Jesus Christ, His death, there are some writers who just believe that all of this just simply escaped Jesus' control. Albert Schweitzer, who's a liberal scholar, in his book called The Quest for the Historical Jesus, here's what Schweitzer said about these events leading up to the arrest, even the trial and then his death. He said, Soon after the Baptist, when he cried, Behold, the Lamb of God, comes Jesus, and he comes in the knowledge that he is the coming Son of Man, and he lays hold of the wheel of the world. To set it moving on that last revolution, which is to bring all ordinary history to a close. Schweitzer says it refuses to turn, and he throws himself upon it. Then it does turn, and it crushes him. And instead of bringing in the yes catalogical catalog, catalog conditions, he has destroyed them. The wheel, he said, rolls onward, and the mangled body of this immeasurably great man who was strong enough to think of himself as the spiritual ruler of mankind and to bend history to his purpose is hanging upon it still. In fact, another writer said, he was mangled like a doll in the merciless gears of history, and he flops. Helplessly, still. What happened during the Passion Week? I mean, was this just out of his control? I mean, did Judas do this and deliver over the Son of Man and betray Him? Yes, and did somehow it lend itself to this just slipping out of the grasp of God and out of the grasp of the Lord Jesus Christ? Beloved, we're going to see this morning, that God's Son was not the merciless victim at the hands of evil men. Each of them is actually moving towards the cross so that He would die in our place. In fact, the key to understanding this text is to see the sovereignty of God. Now, as we drop into John chapter 13 this morning, I just remind you once again, it is Passion Week. So even though it has 21 chapters, chapter 13, it's Passion Week. And it's not just the Passion Week when he came in to the shouts of Hosanna on the Lord's Day on Sunday. This is Thursday night of the Passion Week. He is about 15 to 18 hours before his death. In fact, later this night, the Gospels tell us that he will go into Gethsemane. There would be the... Other betrayal of Jesus, where he would greet him with a kiss. Then that will lead that night to the trial before the Sanhedrin. That will lead that night as well to Peter's own denial. The morning will come and he will find himself on Friday before Pilate. He will be condemned to death. He will be crucified. In the afternoon, he dies. Late in the afternoon, he is buried. In fact, just as you're there in your Bible, All of chapter 13, all the way to chapter 19, takes place between 6 p.m. on Thursday night and Friday at 6 p.m. It's about a 24-hour period, but the Lord deemed this section so important that you've got at least these chapters, six chapters in the Gospel of John, all given to a 24-hour period with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as you draw your eyes to the text and we look at verse 18, the text is turning from the disciples. Look at verse 17. He says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And it turns from the blessing to the disciples for those who obey to now the betrayer who is identified and then condemned in 18 through 30. Let me read the text. You follow along and I'll read It's beginning at verse 18. Jesus says, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this before it takes place, that when it does take place, you, that you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me, receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit, and he testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. And one of the disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at uh, the table, close to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, it is he whom I will give the morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. And no one at the table knew why he had said this to them. Some thought because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what you need for the feast or that he should be giving something to the poor. So after rec- receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. May God bless the reading of his scripture. Let me divide this section for you this morning into three sections different sections that prepare his disciples for the future and teach us a number of profound lessons. So we'll just look at these with three sections that will help us understand what he was doing to prepare those disciples and to teach us some profound lessons. Let's look at this first section, the betrayal is predicted. The betrayal is predicted. You could say the betrayal is prophesied. And what you're going to find here is that Jesus doesn't want the betrayal to surprise them. He doesn't want the disciples to panic. He doesn't want the disciples to walk away saying, how did this happen to a guy on our team? How did we not see this? And how did Jesus not see this? How did we miss this? Did he miss this? Is this really going to happen? Pick up the text with me in verse 18. Jesus said there, I am not speaking of all of you. I have known whom I have chosen. Now, he he wants to say very clearly that he's not speaking of all of you. You say, speaking in what sense? Well, if you go back to verse 17, he said, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them, but I'm not speaking of all of you. And of course, he wasn't speaking of the person of Judas. In fact, if you go back to John 13, look at verse 2. It says very clearly to, there, to us there during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon, Simon's son, to betray him. So already at that meal, the Lord Jesus Christ knew that the devil had put it into his heart. You go all the way back to chapter 6 and verse 71, and it says, and it identified Judas as the one who would betray our Lord. If you glance down in chapter 13, verse 10, Jesus said to him, right, to Peter, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, do you remember that? And he said, but it is completely clean. And Peter, you are clean, comma, but not, what, every one of you. Why? Verse 11, for he knew who was to betray him, and that was why he said, not all of you are clean. So in verse 18, as you come to this text It says there that I'm not speaking of every one of you. You say, what is he doing here? He's preparing the disciples, these fragile disciples, for what's to come. In other words, I don't want you to be rattled. I don't want you to be surprised. I am not speaking of all of you. But this betrayal is predicted. Look at verse 18. Amazingly, he says, but... The scripture will be fulfilled. And here it is. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. He's quoting the scripture here. He is quoting Psalm 41.9. That's the text. It's a Psalm of David where David says there, even my close friend in whom I have trusted Who ate my bread, David said, has lifted his heel up against me. In that context, David is both suffering physically. He's suffering as well against his enemies. But in 41.9, he says, It's my close friend whom I have trusted who has lifted up his heel against me. You can read that on your own. But Psalm 41.9, it's commonly believed that it's referring to a man by the name of Ahithophel. And Ahithophel betrayed King David by helping uh, Absalom, who was David's son, plot against his very own father. And again, in that context, David was being mocked by his enemies. He was suffering from a disease. But worse than that, It was a close friend, David said, who ate my bread. In fact, not only did he eat my bread, but he has lifted up his heel against me. It's the idea there in the language that a horse has kicked me when I was down. And what Jesus now, on this betrayal, he predicts it and he says this. There is a Hith- Ahithophel amongst us. And it's kind of frightening. Can you imagine being at that meal? And he's spoken a little bit of it, you know, in, a, in an obscure way earlier in the Gospels. But now he's going to predict it. And he said, there's one like an Ahithophel who's amongst us. In fact, I don't, it could be very much the case when you look over at First Samuel 15, you'll find that Ahithophel met his death by committing suicide as well. So it's very interesting. You've got Judas betraying the Lord, who will go out by the end of this night and hang himself. And you have a trusted friend of David at one point who will actually betray King David to his son Absalom. So Jesus said, there's one amongst us. And Judas, if you look there in verse 18, it says, is fulfilling the scripture in other words this betrayal was predicted it was predict- predicted prophesied in the old testament look over in your bible at john 17 it says in essence the same thing there in his high priestly prayer jesus as he's praying in 1712 said while i was with them i kept them in your name which you have given me and jesus said i have guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the Scripture might be fulfilled. And of course, he's referring there to Judas. But this isn't the only Scripture. This isn't the only Scripture that would predict this idea of of someone giving The Lord away. I think it comes up on the screen. And I believe this as well. Not immediately, but I believe that David, when he wrote Psalm 55, had a a Thithophel in his mind. For it is not an enemy who taunts me. Then I could bear it. I mean, if it's just somebody on the outside, I'm okay. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me. Then I could just hide from it. I could go away. I wouldn't care. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together within God's house. We walked in the throng. In other words, it was somebody close to David. And you can imagine what that meant for a king to have a trusted advisor betray you. Imagine what it's like for the Lord Jesus Christ when you call someone into your midst For three years, who hears the teaching, who sees and witnesses the miracles, and he's about to betray him. It's not the only scripture, though. But the betrayal is predicted. I think there's one on the next slide there. This one in Zechariah 11, 12, in the Old Testament. It's eerie almost. Did you know this was there? Then I said to them, if it seems good to you, give me my wages But if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages, what? 30 pieces of silver. The exact details of Judas spoken centuries before. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter and the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw it into the house of the Lord to the potter. That is exactly... What Judas did, he took that weight of the, 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 the price, the 30 pieces, which was the price of a slave, and after he had betrayed the Lord, he threw it into the synagogue to fulfill this very scripture. So here, the, the betrayal is predicted, it's prophesied. Now, some feel, writers, have gone to this effort that Judas was given an unfair deal in his lifetime. He is, at this point, fulfilling the Scripture. Some say if Jesus had to die, then the logic would be in some minds, then somebody had to betray him, and why blame Judas? He was, one said, just a tool of God's providence. I just want to say to you that his sinful act did not acquit his treachery. God sovereignly turned Judas's evil to his own righteous purposes, but it in no way makes sin any less sinful or the sinner any less guilty. And what our Lord's going to do throughout the scripture is fuse together divine sovereignty, and human responsibility. On the one hand, Judas' deed had been fully determined in the eternal counsel of God. He fulfilled this scripture. It's what the Bible says. In fact, it also says in Acts 2.23 that he was delivered up, was the son, by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. God was sovereign over that. And yet from the human side, the Bible says that Judas would have been better if he had never been, what? Born. He was fully responsible. Judas' role in God's sovereign plan was never, ever separated from his own choice. In other words, Judas was not a robot. He was not pre-programmed to betray Jesus though he didn't really want to. Judas freely did what he did, chose to do what he did, and is totally accountable for his actions. So on the one hand, his betrayal was predicted, but that in no way contradicts the truth that he acted apart from his own volition. So God uses sinful men to accomplish his will, yes, But it doesn't excuse their sin. It doesn't excuse your sin. You say, well, Scott, how does that practically work? How on the one hand is this betrayal predicted and even prophesied? And on the other hand, he's fully responsible. How does that work? And I would say to you, I'm not quite sure. But I know it's true. I know that both of them are true. I know that this betrayal was predicted. It's quoted in Psalm 41.9. It was a friend who would lift up his heel. And probably what was said of Ahithophel in the Old Testament now is prophesied in the New Testament that it is Judas. Both principles are true. But you say, well, why why does he tell the disciples this? Look again at the scripture in 1319. Here's why. He said, I'm telling you this now. Jesus is so tender with his disciples. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, what? That you might believe that I am he. There is such tenderness here from our Lord. To prepare the disciples for this defection. He doesn't want them. He doesn't want you to be rattled. He doesn't want you to be surprised. So he describes, if you will, the evil in advance. So that their faith, so that your faith wouldn't be undermined. So that when the betrayal does occur... They would believe that I am he. They would believe his deity. And we've looked at that. It's stated as such in 824, in 828, in 858. In other words, he says, I am he. In essence, I am God in the flesh. It's interesting how much he's preparing them for what's to come. Would you look in your Bible, just the next page at John 14? Have you noticed all the places where he tells them this? I'm telling you in advance so that you would believe. I'm telling you in advance so that you may know that I am he. Look at 14.29. He says, and now I have told you before it takes place that when it does take place, you may, what, believe. He's preparing them. So the betrayal is predicted so that he could prepare them. Look over at John 16. He's still there in that upper room. He said in 16.1, do you see it there? I have said all these things to to you to keep you from falling away. I love that. He's he's tender with them, he's preparing them, he's telling them what's coming. I don't want you in 16.1 to fall away. Glance down at 16.4. He says, But I have said these things to you. Here's the purpose clause. That when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. In other words, he's ever preparing them. Look down at chapter 16, verse 32. He said to the disciples there, Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come. And when you will be scattered, each of you to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. Now this, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace, and in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, he said, I have overcome the world. In other words, I, I've told you these things. So he's betraying them for this betrayal. Now look back in John chapter 13. There's a number of commentators that wonder why this is here. He gives a very strong statement in 1320 After he says that I want you to believe I am he, he gives this declaration, this affirmation. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Now, why does he say that here? And there's some who say that, you know, there must be a problem in the the Greek text that this got placed in here, but it's out of place. But I don't think so. It's it's right here. It's in all the manuscripts. Look at it again. Truly, truly, amen and amen. I say to you, whoever receives the one I send, that would be speaking to the disciples, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives the one who sent me, and that is the Father. He wants, beloved, the disciples to know that even with defection and treason and betrayal in their ranks, the commission and the plan of God is not compromised. In other words, whoever receives the one I send, I'm sending you, the disciples, receives me. In other words, If they receive you as you go out, they're receiving me. And he who receives me, it says there, receives the one who sent me, that's the Father. In other words, this is perfectly placed. What an encouragement. In other words, he's telling the disciples that your credibility is not compromised, nor is your commission to go to the world because of this defection and betrayal. I mean, beloved, just practically to you, defection, spiritual defection, is frightening. Hypocrisy in the church even today is paralyzing. Failure of integrity amongst spiritual leaders is immobilizing today. Hypocrites in this day in our day, are everywhere. Are they not? They're in the church. They're in ministry. They're on the mission field. They're everywhere. Last week, I was on vacation. And it's one of those vacations you're trying to get to. We were on our way to Lake Powell. And uh, I had a board meeting down south uh, at the Master's University. And so I had to jump on a plane to go to Utah. And I got to this place called St. George, Utah, long story. And my wife and kids picked me up there in this Ford excursion. And right as we got out of the airport, we were supposed to go one way. We missed it, just, just real briefly. And so I pulled on to this street, a side street called Sandy hollow road. We were obviously going the wrong road. We knew we were going the wrong way. And so I went to pull a U-turn, and as I pulled the U-turn, my car just sank like quicksand. And so you know how that goes. We called AAA, and we waited for about two and a half hours while my girl's Played on Instagram and did a various number of dances. And we're just, I'm sitting out there. So they finally got there in the middle of nowhere. And we got back and we got to the, the lake late. But we got there on the way home. Driving home on Tuesday. I feel like the car's bumping. And it, like it's kind of shaking. And I'm like, I, lo- I, sh- I looked over to my wife. Is this the road? Or is this the car? And as soon as I, sh- I said that... I'm going 75. Well, what's the speed limit? Uh, I think I was going to speed, and I just like, oh no. And my I, I made it over to the right side, and I don't even know how to explain it. Just the whole tread came off like a peeled donut on the car. And I got out and my car. The tread was off, and then it, it hit the wheel well so strong, it cut a line. And it, I, I was trying to smell it, put my hand in it, you know, and I'm like, this isn't diesel fuel. And so, it was the radiator. So, there's a radiator cord. So, we're back now on our way home in the middle of nowhere after Barstow, in between Moron and Hinkley. It might be called Boron, okay, but I... And, and again, I'm waiting for three more hours for AAA. Um, hey, I, I got my girls out here—three teenagers and my wife. We're in the middle of nowhere. Um, it's you know, I mean, it's going on three hours. So finally, the, the tow truck guy comes up, and he's gonna tow us to uh, to Hatchapee. Okay, and I'm I, you know you you know you sit and wait. It's the opposite of in and out restaurant. AAA is call and wait, you know. So I'm waiting, and the guy says, hey, I'll have to put you in my car. I can take two of you, and the CHP will take the other three. So we get in the car, and I'm kind of like, man, that's a long night. So I'm, I'm in the car, this is why I'm telling a story, with this guy named Miguel. He's the tow truck driver. I'm in his front truck, front seat with him. So what do you do when you got 45 minutes to Tehachapi? You start sharing the gospel. Where can he go? he can't go anywhere. So I start to tell him the gospel, and I start to go back to the beginning with Adam and Eve, and and did he know? And he, he really didn't know. And so Lindsay, I just look, is in the back, and I start telling him about God, and I start telling him about the fall, and I start telling him about creation, and I start telling him about sin, and I start telling him, I mean, he's captive, and I'm kind of upset. He made me wait a long time. So I'm just like preaching at him. And we're just, you know, in this big, giant tow truck. Brrr, you know, and, and so after about 15 minutes, I, I said, hey, what do you think, Miguel? And he, he was quiet the whole time. I just thought I'm going to give it to him. And uh, he says, you know, he began to t- talk, very articulate. He says, you know, the greatest struggle that I have with the church is he said, there are so many hypocrites. He goes, people who, he wasn't evangelical, he was Catholic, and he he just said, so many people who profess one thing and then live another way, I've just stopped going because of the presence of hypocrites. And there's hypocrites, as I said, everywhere in ministry, on the mission field, maybe in our church. And I think what Jesus is telling these disciples is, listen, you've got a Judas in your midst, and I want you to keep going. I want you to keep preaching. His defection is, His hypocrisy, his failure doesn't alter the fact that I'm going to send you and whoever I send that receives you receives me and then whoever receives Christ is actually receiving the Father. It is a great encouragement to these disciples. You know, there could be some of you who are just on the sideline because of how churches have handled you. It is so discouraging, and I understand for some of you that you've just kind of sat down and have lost track who you are. And I think to these disciples, he's saying, listen, I'm telling you, I'm predicting this betrayal that when it comes, you're not going to lose heart. Just in the last two months, two pastors have fallen to immorality, one Nationally known, globally known, that for basically 43 years of his ministry, he has been living in some form of compromise immorally. And he had to resign, the other pastor resigned, the other woman who was on staff resigned, and the entire elder board just resigned because they felt like they missed the sin in their midst, and they were part of it. You know, when you're a young man, you look at those things, and you just say, I might just be all done. But I just want you to know that no matter what defection there is, what betrayal there is, what hypocrisy there is in the world, Jesus saying, I'm going to send you, and if they receive you, they receive me. And if they receive me, then they're going to receive the Father who sent me. I think he's giving them great encourage. Listen, the gospel's going forward. The commission's going forward. Don't get off track. Don't retire from your duty. You keep going. And I'm telling you, he is going to betray me. That when he does, you won't be surprised. You need to stay the course. Now look at verse 21. He says there after saying these things he was troubled in a spirit and he testified truly, truly I say to you one of you will betray me. So I take you from the betrayal is predicted secondly to the betrayal is proclaimed. The betrayal is proclaimed. In other words he tells them here so clearly one of you will betray me. And he's never said that before. He said there's one in the midst, but, he, but he's at the Last Supper. And he now says, one of you is going to betray me. And so the Bible says that he is there in 21 troubled. It means terrified. I don't know another way to say it. Not that he lost his deity in that process, but he is fully human and he was Troubled, and it's the ideal of mental anguish. It's the ideal of great, great turmoil. We saw that word in 1227 and 1133 and 34. You say, well, Scott, why would he be so troubled? Because this is the inner convulsion that one of his disciples would betray him to an enemy. And I think he is troubled. It is mentally anguishing for him. You say, well, why so, Scott? It could be a number of reasons. I'd say number one, because he loved Judas. He loved them. He just spent three years with him. Even when they came up to him in the garden to arrest him and he betrayed him with a kiss, Jesus greeted him with this word, friend. I think he's troubled for that. I think he's also troubled that in the midst of this meal is the presence of, of the diabolical one, Satan himself. He's troubled that in his action, Judas's actions, that he's on his way to hell. He's thinking potentially of the looming cross. He's thinking of the separation from his father. The betrayal is proclaimed. One of you will betray me. If you look back in the text, look at verse 2 again. You know, it doesn't say that he was saying this to everyone during supper when the devil already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. John's now writing 60 years after the cross. They didn't know that. Look down at verse 10 again when he says, Peter, you are clean, but not every one of you. He didn't identify him at that point, but here the betrayer is proclaimed Now you look again at the text, after saying these things in 21, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and it says that he testified, very interesting word. You know what's interesting about that is it only appears three times the word testified in all of Matthew, all of Mark, and all of Luke, only three times. It appears in John's gospel, the word testified 33 times. 33, you say, well, Scott, why is that? Well, Matthew, Mark, and Luke is more of a narrative. It's more of a story. And John, as we have seen, is declaration after declaration after declaration. I am the bread of life. I am the living waters. I am God in the flesh. And here he declares this, that one of you, it must have got quiet in that room, will betray me. And the disciples are shocked. Even though he had predicted his death, he had never identified the betrayer that was inside their ranks. It's one of you. Imagine being at that meal. I mean, I would just ask you, think of the portraits. What conjures up into your mind that you have seen of the last supper? Have you seen Leonardo, not DiCaprio, but Da Vinci's photograph of the Last Supper? Some people think he photographed that at the Last Supper itself. He didn't. It's a painting. Jesus, of course, was reclining at the table. And in that picture, he almost makes the disciples look and seated almost serenely. Like they're with their master at the Last Supper. Maybe that happened after Judas left the room, but John's portrait here is one of horror. It's one of shock. Have you ever wondered why didn't Jesus just come out and point at Judas? Have you ever just thought he, he could have been in that room and said, it's one of you and it's him. You, you know, it sounds pretty dramatic. You know that he he doesn't do that. You say, Pastor, you have a reason for that? Well, I think on a human level, if he had done that, I think Peter would have slitted his throat on the spot. Honest. he's gonna take his sword out and cut the ear off Malchus in a few hours, if one was betraying you inside the ranks, I think the disciples would have took care of it all by themselves. Burly, brawny fishermen that they were but they're shocked when he says it's one of you. You say, well, how do you know they're shocked, Scott? Look at the text in 22. He said, one of you will betray me. And the disciples looked at one another and they were uncertain of whom he spoke. They're, per- they're absolutely stunned. They're perplexed. There's betrayal in the ranks and they, they didn't know who it was. In fact, if you look at that statement in twenty. Two, when it says they looked at one another in the language of the, the tense there is they kept looking at one another around the room if you will shocked by the proclamation the disciples one of them would betray him they were all shocked except for who Judas they were thrown into confusion D.A. Carson offers this thought. He said the 12 were already disoriented by Jesus' allusions to a suffering and death, categories that they still could not square with their conviction that he was the promised Messiah. Carson said doubtless references to betrayal seemed obscure. Perhaps some wondered if Jesus were referring to disciples outside the ring of the 12, Perhaps the notion of betrayal did not seem threatening to them since why? Their master could calm the storm. He could raise the dead. He could feed the hungry. He could heal the sick. What possible disaster could befall him that he could not rectify? It's true. They didn't know who it was. You talk about the greatest hypocrite in the world? Absolutely. For three years, he's with them. He's holding the money bag and he used to steal from the money bag according to John 12. You say, which disciple was it? Let me bring you to the third section and insight. The betrayer is presented. The betrayer is presented. Would you look at verse 23? One of his disciples whom Jesus loved and who is that? We all would identify that as John. It's presented here, presented in 18, 19, and 20, or 19, 20, and 21 again. We'll look at that later. But one of the disciples whom Jesus loved, and John, was reclining at the table close to Jesus. So Simon, it says in verse 24, motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, you can see it there, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who, what is it? Now, I've taken you the time in other parts of John 13 to say that they're not sitting at a table that you sit at. Remember, they're sitting at this low-shaped, it's probably this high off the ground, a U-shaped table. Jesus, as as the host of it, is in the middle. And remember I said that they would lean, if you can imagine this to be on a low table, they would customarily lean at this meal on their left elbow. Their feet extended that way, and that's when he got up and washed their feet. Their feet would go out from the table. But as they're leaning on the left, they are taking the food at the table on the right and partaking of this, the last Passover meal before Jesus would die on the cross. So when it says the one whom Jesus loved was reclining at the table at Jesus' side, then you understand what that means. He's leaning at the table like this, And John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, is on his, what? His right. It's a privileged position in some ways. And the Bible's very clear that he leaned back. He was the one who leaned back in his breast. It wouldn't be hard for him to do that. If this is John, somehow Peter motioned to John, hey, ask him who it is. Peter's the leader, right? And so John must have leaned back like this, literally on the breast of Christ and said, who is it? In other words, Peter wanted to know. Peter wanted to understand who it was and so he motions to John. Look at the text in verse 26. Jesus answered. Now we, we follow this. It is he whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Now now just stop there just for a second. To give, to be given a morsel by the host was to be singled out with special honor. In other words, the Lord Jesus Christ right up to the very end dipped that morsel in that herb and that raisin and that oil base and then he gave it to Judas. Now I can't tell you this for sure, but I want you to know, have you ever thought this? I think Judas was on his left. I think if he had to motion to Peter, he's motioning it to Peter somewhere else on the U-shaped or he would have just said something to Peter on his side. I'm thinking that John is on the Lord Jesus' right and I'm thinking he took the morsel, dipped it, and then gave it to Judas right there on his left. But listen, he was so far gone into his apostasy that even after the Lord dipped the morsel and gave it to Judas, the wretched traitor's heart remained implacably hardened. And Judas spurned Christ's final gesture of love to him just as he had for the previous three years. So well, what happened? Look at the text in 27. And after he had taken the morsel, watch this, Satan entered him. And Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do what? Quickly. You say, well, they knew at that point. Well, no. Look at verse 28. Now, no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Now, you you have to come back with me and say, what's going on here? Well, either Jesus told John, in such a quiet tone that none of them knew because of all the disciples had dipped their hand in the bowl, they were all unaware. Either he said, hey, it's the one that I dip the morsel in and give it to. And he told John in a very quiet tone. Or else, John was even confused. Because it says right there in 28... No one at the table knew what he had said to him. Now, maybe he was saying what you do, go do quickly. You say, well, Scott, maybe, maybe John knew. Well, Carson said the momentous nature of Jesus' confidence left John temporarily paralyzed. Don't know. Don't know. Judas knew. Maybe John knew from a whisper, but I don't think anybody else at the table knew what was going on. In fact, in Mark... The ambiguity, if you will, provokes a soul-searching. This is what it says in Mark 14, 9. They begin to be grieved, and they said to him, one by one, surely not what? I. They didn't know who it was. For three years, this guy has masked his utter hypocrisy. And they, one by one, with sorrowful heart in the text, saying, surely not I. One by one, surely not I. You say, did Judas get into the mix? Oh, yeah. You see it on the screen? Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? And he said to him, You have said so, or you have said it so to yourself. Jesus, and sees that. And Judas obviously mimics the disciples answered almost in a feigned loyalty and he said, you have said it so, condemning himself. And instead of our Lord's knowledge, listen I think there's grace there, right there. I think instead of our Lord's knowledge breaking in him, it hardened him to a greater resolve to betray the Lord Jesus Christ. And do you see what happens there in the text? It says, do you see it in 27? Satan entered him He said, what you do, do quickly. In other words, do what you already decided you're going to do. And then, beloved, hell comes. Hell comes. Do you notice the language? Satan entered him. So what's striking about that? Well, it strikes me that in 13.2, he put it in his heart. But here, now in thirteen. 27, it is full possession. You know, the Bible speaks of demon possession. You can see that on the next slide. You send us into the pigs, let us enter into them. Luke 8, Jesus then asked, what is your name? And he said, legion, for many demons had entered him. But this text is different. Satan himself entered into Judas to take full possession. Mercy, beloved, gives way to judgment. And I think only Jesus saw this. You say, well, what did they think? Well, look at the text, 29. Some thought because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what you need for the feast. That wasn't the feast, the Passover, but that night, in the Jewish custom, the Feast of Unleavened Bread started. And you say, well, it was late at night. Well, it might have been late at night. They say no stores were open. Well, no, that's not true. They were open at Passover. They kept the gates open until 12 p.m. that night. And some stores would most likely be open because the Feast of Unleavened Bread was following on the heels of that. And they, they said, buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. The gates were open until 12, that the poor would come in for Passover and they didn't know what Judas was doing. But here in this case for Judas, his plot had been discovered. The rulers need to add quickly. It was night, the Bible says in 1330 when Judas left the room, but I don't think it was just night physically. I think there's great theological significance here. It was night on the outside, but even more alarming than that, it, it is utter darkness and night on the inside of his heart. Beloved, consumed by his greed, consumed by his lust for gold and power and money, he sold the Son of Man for the price of a slave. And I would say to you, there comes a time when a person is completely hardened, and when you refuse his warnings, here you'll see that Jesus is through with Judas, and he sent him out, and I think he sent him out so that he could have that upper room discourse with those who knew him. One writer said it was night forever and Judas would never see another daylight and has never seen light since. He is in the outer darkness forever. It's over, but it will never be over in the world that he went to. Weeping, wailing, gnashing of teeth forever. What is hell? It is a place of regret and the more you have to regret, the more torturous it will be. Frightening, isn't it? You say, what what can we take away from this? What can we take away from this? Well, I'll give you a few things, okay? Number one is the danger of squandered privilege. Can you imagine being in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ for three years and squandering that privilege? But it might not be the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of you have grown up in the life of the church. This is a frightening truth, and I say that to you as a shepherd. There is a tremendous danger of squandered privilege to hear week after week after week after week truth and not respond. I'm not quite sure how a pastor that's 66 for 43 years of his ministry has conducted himself in such a way that he has squandered the great sacred privilege that the Lord Jesus Christ gave to him. And then another man who I know... And who have spoken at conference with him had to step out of his pulpit for an unconfessed adulterous affair that took place many years ago to only confess of a second adulterous affair. But listen, one thing Judas teaches is the greatest danger of squandered privilege. But don't look at him. Look within our own hearts. Maybe the truth is, is that all the disciples said, is it I? Because there was a sense, if you see a wicked way in me, then lead me to the everlasting way. But Judas's language is different. He, he just asked that different question in Matthew. But there's the danger of squandered privilege. Secondly, is the danger of the love of money. I don't need to go far on this. Greed. So well, why did he do what he did? I don't know. Maybe just the Messiah wasn't who he thought. I think from the very beginning he's putting his hand in the money bag. He's feigning some kind of loyalty that it could have been given to the poor when really he wants to consume it for himself because in the end of his heart was not a love for the savior in his heart was a love for money and when Jesus and when Judas excuse me sold Jesus to his enemies he was in effect selling his own soul to the devil in the words of one poet it said this still as of old men by themselves are priced For 30 pieces, Judas sold himself, not Christ. And thirdly, there's the danger of hypocrisy. Can you imagine being around that the whole time and then somehow walking from it? But listen, if you're in the hearing of the word this morning, there is hope. Say, what kind of hope? This and Ezekiel. As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, or why will you die, O house of Israel? Listen, if there's in you, if there's in your heart, and if this scripture has exposed that, then listen, there's the hope of the grace of God to turn from your sin this morning and come to the Savior. For Judas, at one point, it got too late, but it's not too late for you. Jesus said in Luke 13, Jerusalem, a city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and yet you were not willing. I'd like to ask you, are you willing? (laughs) Are you willing? He's holding out the grace of God to you this morning. In fact, I would encourage you not to go out and continue a sinful path, not to wait another time. Today is the day of salvation. Don't harden your heart against the truth that is spoken. He says, and you were not willing, but I'm asking you the opposite question. Are you willing? Listen, there's dangers in this text, but also there is the grace of God. Let me say one final thing to you is the sovereignty of God in the midst of your trial. Listen, beloved, a God who is in control, even when the foundations of His own earthly existence are crumbling is a God who can be trusted when it appears that our life is caving in. Listen, you can trust him when all things look wrong because he's in perfect control.